Um, a very warm welcome. I'm Roman Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be having uh, this launch today of our terrific report. You've got a copy. Uh, Devolution at 20, at 20 years, and this event and the report itself very kindly supported by the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to plunge straight in. But let me just say just a few things briefly about why we're doing this and a whole summer of work on devolution at 20. We've got this one. We've got Mark Drakeford speaking at uh, 1 o'clock, I think, on, one o'clock on Thursday. Thursday. Yep. Yep. Uh, First Minister of Wales. We have had a big report already of ministers reflect um, uh, that is ministers working in the devolved governments. Uh, Jack has uh, contributed to that already, text of that online. And we will be having a collection of essays called Has Devolution Worked? Uh, due out at the end of June. And for those of you who are uh, real groupies of all this, we had an interview with Tony Blair on this subject out last week, uh, which will also feature in, the, in, that, in that book of essays. So a lot going on. And we're doing this because this is one of the biggest experiments that the UK has performed on itself, if you like. And you know, to, to, we deal a lot with the international media. This really, to us, it confounds the, the UK's uh, international reputation, if you like, as a very conservative, traditional country bound by its history. This was something that the UK did uh, very, very quickly and then has spent 20 years improving. Um, it reflects a challenge that many modern democracies face, uh, how to get people with maybe very different senses of identity to live together in one nation, and it really matters, not just for the UK, but for other countries, of whether, whether this works. And we set out in this document to look at whether this uh, has worked, but this one is very much driven by the data on devolution, the size, the cost of government, and what the legislation and the, the political makeup has looked uh, like at that time. We're going to kick off with the home team, uh, Aaron Chung, who's a senior researcher here, is going to start off, and then uh, Akash Pound, um, a senior fellow here, is going to pick up some of the themes, and Lucy, where is Lucy? Lucy Balsamides, uh, the third author of the report, is, is also here. And then we have to discuss it. Jack McConnell, who was first Minister of Scotland from 2001 to 2007, who was also before that Ministers of Finance and Education. Laura McAllister, Professor Laura McAllister, uh, Professor of Public, Public Policy at Cardiff University, who was chair of the expert panel on the Assembly electoral reform, which is, is still some of it going through the Assembly, but among other things, recommending bringing the voting age down to 16. And at the end, Alan Weisel, who's an honorary senior research associate at the Constitutional Unit at UCL, was uh, formerly a senior civil servant for many years in the Northern Ireland office, and was involved in the Northern Ireland peace process for many years. He was a long time head of the, uh, the devolution secretariat in the cabinet office from 2007 to 2009, and is now setting up a think tank in Northern Ireland and is author of a recent constitution unit report on the border poll. So much to talk about from many angles, but with that, let me stop. Aaron, uh, do kick off. Thank you, Bronwyn. Um, Um, so I'm going to very briefly cover the story of devolution in its first two decades. I'm then going to hand over to my colleague Akash, who's going to discuss some of the challenges for the third decade. So what is the story of devolution so far? 
1999 was a landmark year for devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But devolution started from a very different position in each nation and, and has changed differently in each nation since. In our report we cover five chapters. We look at the impact of electoral systems and also the diverging party systems across the UK. We look at the devolved parliaments and assemblies exploring how they've operated in practice. We look at how the devolved administrations are organised and how their workforces have changed. We also look at public spending across the four nations and also at increasing tax devolution. We finally look at the impact devolution has had on Westminster and Whitehall and how Brexit is affecting the central devolved relationship. So devolution started differently in each nation. Before devolution, Scotland already had its own legal system and other public services were also managed separately. As the chart shows, every year there were several Scotland-only bills making their way through the UK Parliament. There was very little Wales-specific legislation before 1999 um, and Wales also remained part of the England and Wales legal jurisdiction. Northern Ireland, meanwhile, had previously had a devolved government, but since 1972 had been under direct rule from Westminster. Each year, the UK Parliament passed a large number of orders in council for Northern Ireland, a type of secondary legislation. In 1999, the Scottish Parliament gained full legislative powers in areas of devolved responsibility. Since then, the volume of Scotland-only legislation has increased. The National Assembly for Wales initially did not have the same primary legislative powers, gaining partial powers in 2007 and full powers in 2011. The Northern Ireland Assembly also gained full powers in 1999. Um, since then, however, activity in the Assembly has been disrupted by several collapses in power sharing, as we can see on the chart, notably between 2002 and 2007, and again since 2017. During this pe these periods, as we can see, the UK government has stepped in to legislate for Northern Ireland. Over the two decades of devolution, distinctive party systems have also emerged in each nation. Devolution started in an era of political alignment across Great Britain. Labour governed with a majority in Westminster and led minority or coalition governments in Scotland and Wales. In Northern Ireland, the power-sharing executive was led by the Ulster Unionist Party and the SDLP between 1999 until suspension in 2002. Um, these two parties are considered the more moderate of the two unionist and nationalist parties, respectively. Since then, different parties have governed in each nation. In 2007, the SNP gained power in Scotland. At the same time, the power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland was restored, this time with the DUP and Sinn Féin as the largest unionist and nationalist parties. Then in 2010, the Conservatives gained power in Westminster while Labour continued to govern in Wales. So by early 2017, the four governments of the UK were led by five parties with very different and often conflicting agendas. What's also striking is that in the devolved governments, Coalition and minority governments have been the norm in contrast to Westminster. Only once has a majority been achieved in a devolved election in 2011 by the SNP in Scotland. Moving on to funding, in 1999 many aspects of the UK's pre-devolution funding arrangements were preserved. For example, the Barnet formula first used in 1979 remained in place. This was used to fund the devolved administration's block grants. 
This allowed each administration to set their own spending priorities. Since 2010, we can see different trends emerging for public spending in each nation. For example, spending on health has increased most in England. Spending on education, which includes higher education in this chart, and public order and safety, which includes prisons and policing, um, has been more protected in Scotland. Civil service staff numbers have also changed differently for each administration. In Scotland, staff numbers have increased since 2010. In Wales, numbers are slightly down, while in Northern Ireland, numbers are down substantially, similar to the UK government. Our current working hypothesis is that the Welsh government is trying to achieve a perfect W for Wales. <laughs> um, so, in 1999, um, almost all taxes continue to be collected by Westminster. The main exceptions were local property taxes, council tax and business rates, amounting to about 10% of tax revenue in each nation. In contrast, local or devolved government accounted for 65% of spending in Scotland, 59% in Wales and 91% in Northern Ireland, which administers its own welfare system. So there was a significant imbalance between the devolved tax raising powers and the devolved spending powers. Recently, this has changed somewhat. Stamp duty and landfill tax are now devolved fully in Scotland and Wales. In Scotland, income tax is also devolved, while a portion of revenues are also devolved in Wales. This makes up 21% of Scottish tax revenue and 9% of Welsh tax revenue. And there's more tax devolution to come. Air passenger duty in Scotland and corporation tax in Northern Ireland. In Scotland, 50% of VAT revenue is also assigned to the Scottish budget. Tax devolution in each nation means that in future, devolved administrations will stand to gain financially if growth in their tax bases outperforms other parts of the UK, and their budgets will take a hit if their economies fall behind. So, we've seen that in the past two decades, the devolved settlements in each nation have continued to evolve. As we head into the third decade, further change appears inevitable. The main reason for this is Brexit, which has placed considerable strain on the relationship between devolved and UK government. My colleague Akash is now going to talk through some of the main challenges for the third decade. Thank you, Aaron. So, as we've heard, Devolution since 1999 has been something of a, a tale of two decades. There was a relative stability for the first eight to ten years, followed by growing fiscal and political pressures in decade two, culminating in the EU referendum and its uh, disruptive aftermath. And as devolution now enters decade three, we identify seven challenges that we think will need to be addressed one way or the other. So first of all, there's still a need for the UK and devolved governments to agree on how to replace European law in the many areas that are devolved in principle under the current devolution legislation, but constrained in practice, often significantly, by EU regulations and directives. Um, according to government analysis recently published, um, there are an estimated 160 such distinct policy areas that fall into that intersection between EU and devolved law uh, or EU and devolved power, stretching across 10 different Whitehall departments with variation between the three nations. And in most of these areas, 
um, full control is expected to flow automatically uh, to, the, to the devolved institutions, although, of course, subject to the terms of the future UK-EU relationship. But in 21 areas, the government currently believes that new UK-wide law or legal frameworks may be required, um, for instance, to protect the functioning of the UK internal market once we leave, or assuming we leave, the EU single market. And that implies that new constraints on devolved power may be imposed um, in areas, particularly areas falling within uh, the remits of DEFRA and BASE, so agriculture, fisheries, aspects of uh, environmental regulation, regulation of services and other things. And this is, of course, a, a contested issue, particularly between the UK and, and Scottish governments, who appear to be far apart on this um, issue. But assuming that Brexit does, does go ahead in some form, this will need to be um, sorted in one way or another. Um, and related to that, our second challenge is that there is a clear need recognised over many years actually by the Institute for Government and lots of other uh, inquiries and, and studies that we need to, the governments need to establish stronger and more transparent, more accountable systems for working together, for taking joint decisions and for resolving uh, disputes between them. This has always been a weak point of the uh, UK's devolution arrangements, but Brexit has made this even more pressing a challenge. And we have some analysis in the report of how this, these systems have worked so far. There is supposedly a review of intergovernmental relations underway at the moment between the, the, the UK and devolved governments. Um, it was announced about six months ago but we've seen no visible signs of progress since then. Others in the room may have uh, information, they, they know about it, but it doesn't look like much work has been done in that respect. And one reason why agreement on, on those previous challenges has been so hard to reach is a deeper problem, which we identify as our third challenge, that Westminster and the devolved institutions, and it isn't just the SNP, I would hasten to add, appear to lack a common understanding of some core constitutional principles. And Brexit has really sort of uh, exposed this, though, though the differences were already there. Um, so, for instance, Brexit has placed the Sewell, Conven uh, Sewell Convention under serious strain. This is, uh, I know this is a room of sort of Devo geeks, but if anyone isn't aware, the Sewell Convention is the commitment by Westminster that it will not normally legislate in devolved areas or to amend the terms of devolution without consent. Um, and that became, very quickly after 1999, a crucial pillar, really, of the, of the Constitution and of the relationship between the levels of, of, of government. Consent has been voted on, we show this in detail in the report, for at least 202 Acts of Parliament um, in, in, in the different nations, um, and with only occasional disagreements that were nearly always resolved fairly quickly. Um, and then Brexit came along, of course. The EU Withdrawal Act last year, many of you will be aware, was the first time, the first time since 99, that Westminster has legislated without consent, from Scotland in this case, despite having recognised 
that consent should be sought, given the effects that that legislation had on, on devolution. And that's led on to disagreements relating to several other Brexit bills, agriculture, fisheries, trade, where the Scottish government has declared it will not even consider consent. They won't even bring forward the motions. Um, and the Welsh government also has expressed serious concerns about the implications of, of what happened in that case of Westminster amending the terms of devolution unilaterally. We'll hear from Mark Drakeford on that issue on Thursday, I'm sure. So this is, we think, a quite serious breakdown of a very important, um, as I say, pillar of the post-devolution constitution. And we think there's a need um, to, to try and build a new shared understanding of, of how these uh, conventions should work, but not only how Sewell itself should work, more generally, whether devolution might require additional protections of some kind for the post-Brexit age. I, I think Lord McConnell may, may touch upon this issue um, in his remarks. Um, moving on to our fourth point. Aaron has already described how the systems for funding devolution have evolved since 1999. And, and we think we've ended up with a system that has often been reformed for quite sensible reasons, but overall it's come to lack uh, clear principles um, coherence or indeed transparency about how certain decisions are made, um, such as additional funding for Northern Ireland uh, when the UK did its deal with the DUP. And we conclude that um, these systems, the overall system for funding devolution, may need to be reconsidered uh, further over the coming years. There's already changes underway that haven't been implemented, as we've heard, and there's a question about what, if anything, is put in place to uh, replace EU funding, common agricultural policy, structural funds in particular. Fifth, there's a challenge we've heard mention of, of trying to re-establish power sharing in Belfast. Um, there's been no assembly or executive since 2017, and that has left an accountability vacuum with little policy development taking place and Northern Ireland as a whole lacking a voice in the Brexit process. So it's, it's, it's a welcome sign, of course, that the talks have resumed just today. Um, and I look forward to hearing from Alan in particular and others on whether this time might be different. Sixth, there's a specific challenge, we think, that the Welsh Assembly um, appears to have too few members to carry out the expanded functions it's acquired since 1999. Laura, Professor McAllister, I'm sure will um, be speaking about this matter. We look at this a bit in our report. Um, for example, you can see that the assembly or assembly members are more stretched than in any of the other UK legislatures, for instance, in terms of how many committees each member has to serve upon. Um, and that does support the case for a larger assembly. And we suggest if that is to happen, it should be elected with a system that guarantees at least the same degree of proportionality as at present. Finally, we suggest that the question of how England is governed and what is England's place within the post-evolution union, um, that set of issues cannot continue to be ignored. Not to say that there's a simple solution, um, but we do put that out there as something that hopefully the Institute will do some further work on and, and we would encourage others to engage in that question too. 
cutting across these seven challenges, we think there's a broader issue that so far in the 20 years since 99, there's been too little consideration of how the different devolution settlements, how the different parts of the constitution fit together. There have been separate debates and reform processes that have delivered some great successes in each part of the UK, but there hasn't been much consideration of the union as a whole. And, and perhaps the big task for the third decade of devolution may therefore be to attempt to join the pieces of the jigsaw back together. I now look forward to hearing what our respondents have to say. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. One person offering to clap. No, we will clap, we clap, we clap, we clap at the end. But let's, right. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. That's um, lots of points to pick up there. Um, let's press straight on to uh, Jack McConnell and your thoughts. Um, 20 years of success? Broadly, yes. Um, uh, with, with a few caveats. Um, I, think be, I think it's interesting that an analysis of the 20 years um, that focuses in on a few areas of concern doesn't include in the concerns the fundamentals of the scheme. So I think that proves that the original fundamentals of devolution, particularly to Scotland, were, uh, were very strong. The split between reserved and devolved uh, matters, the, and, and the, the principle split, not necessarily the detail, um, was a masterstroke. Uh, it, it clarified uh, what we were and were not responsible for, and it's led to a lot of the stability and consistency in decision making, even if the, the, the political relationship has become slightly less stable in the, uh, in the second uh, decade. Um, I think the budget process that I had the privilege of uh, putting through the Parliament in the first year as Minister for Finance, but that was developed largely by consensus in the Parliament, um, has been uh, a big success. I'm not saying necessarily the individual budget decisions are a success, but the fact that a Parliament that's only, I think, in four years had a, had a single party majority out of those 20 years has managed to pass a budget within the required timescale uh, in, every, in, in every one of those 20 years, uh, I think, is, um, is an indication of the seriousness of the, the way the business is done. Um, so I think in these areas and in other areas, the basic fundamentals have been, uh, have been strong. Um, but I think if you're looking back, you have to try and judge a parliament on, or, on, on three levels. One is, does, is it producing good legislation? The second is, uh, is it speaking for Scotland? And the third is... Uh, uh, is it holding the executive and public bodies uh, uh, properly accountable? Uh, of those three, I would say the area in which the Parliament's had most success has been in legislation. Um, you can see from this chart, actually this chart even kind of masks to some extent the significance of the change, because the legislation that was coming for Scotland through Westminster prior to 1999 was really just one or two significant bills uh, or acts a year. The other... Uh, uh, acts and measures were relatively minor. And the Westminster Parliament had never, for example, dealt with the whole issue of land reform in Scotland, an antiquated, out-of-date, regressive uh, feudal system. Um, the Scottish criminal justice system was way behind uh, uh, other, uh, 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 other systems in terms of um, reform and modernisation. Um, and in a whole series of other areas, there were rights that were 
needed in Scotland that were not, uh, were not in place. So the power of the ability to legislate, fill the democratic gap, uh, have a parliament in Scotland that was legislating only for Scotland, has been considerable and has fundamentally changed Scotland over these uh, 20 years. The fact that very few of those bills have been challenged legally, I think, again, is a testament to, to the strength of the, de the decision-making process. Sorry, you were going to... No, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let me ask you a couple... Go on. Go well, on. Well, well, let me just conclude on, on, on a couple of points. Um, in relation to speaking for Scotland, sometimes the Parliament's got it right, sometimes it's not. Um, in relation to holding the executive accountable, yes, politicians and public administrators in Scotland are closer to the people, but whether the balance is right in the Parliament between the, um, the ministers, the government executive team and the uh, backbenchers and civic society and the public in Scotland... I think is a, is a point that's worth discussion. The other area that I think uh, um, has been highlighted here that I think is important to reflect on after 20 years is whether the UK has changed enough over that 20 years. And I think there's, if there's unfinished business to be done, then that unfinished business is probably here rather than in Edinburgh. I don't think the UK state has changed enough to understand, deal with and reflect the post-devolution uh, uh, Britain that we now live in. And I think there are fundamental reforms required at the UK level uh, if uh, Britain and the devolved nations are to be well governed. I don't agree <coughs> with the premise of Tony's interview that uh, this should be judged on whether it saves the union or not. This is not about saving the union. This is about good governance for Scotland and good governance for the UK. And our judgment should be based on that, not on the politics of whether or not we've managed to shift the balance of power between political parties or political movements. Well, let me just pick you up on that before we come, come to Wales. Tony Blair said in, in, this, in this interview, look, I put the, uh, um, I, put, I made a commitment to, um, to devolution in the 1997 manifesto because I thought the union was at stake and we were going to lose Scotland to the independence movement. And look, it's been a, something of a success. We've still got Scotland. Uh, so therefore, big tick for, for devolution. Um, do you think... Um, that the thrust of that is right, that it's, it's put paid to the independence movement, um, or do you think this is just a stepping stone on the way to independence? Well, I, th I think the fundamental premise is wrong. You know, I think there were always two strong views in the Labour Party. There were those who saw devolution for Scotland as a sort of tactical response to nationalism and the level of support at different times for independence, and there were those who believed in it in principle. Um, and I was very much in that second camp. You know, I thought it was a democratic deficit in Scotland. There was a gap. We had a, a separate legislative uh, uh, system in Scotland, and yet we didn't have a legislator to govern that. That was directly elected, and uh, we needed to fill that gap. And the added benefits of having a parliament and a first minister, where you could also speak for Scotland and, uh, and, and make good decisions that improve the country. But I, I don't think we should measure devolution on whether or not it uh, deals with independence. I think whether Scotland becomes independent will be a political debate on and on and on. Uh, um, at the moment, I think it's very complicated for those who support independence because of the implications of, uh, of Brexit and England effectively leaving the European Union. Um, we could talk about that. Okay, yeah. I'm going to pick that, that up after. The, the prospects, yeah. I think. All right, let's, let's move on to Wales. Laura, 20 years. What do we make of it? Well, I think... The first obvious thing to say is that Wales is very different to Scotland. I mean, talking about devolution in itself is problematic because the nations are so fundamentally different. The models of devolution are so fundamentally different. 
and in the case of Wales we had no real warm-up for the uh, advent of the National Assembly and almost like an athlete going out onto the track not having warmed up you, you're probably going to sprain a few muscles over the first couple of years and that's happened in Wales you know make no mistake about that um, but having said all of that, um, oh, let me add one more contextual factor. Wales is very different in it. It has a hugely immature media. It has a quarter of its population um, from over the border in England. Um, no conversation about the governance of Wales prior to the late 1990s of any note. Therefore, a model of devolution lands in our lap. The Assembly is set up. A fundamentally flawed model of devolution, as you, as you two have uh, outlined, you know, a model of executive devolution with no distinction between the executive and the legislature, ministers sitting on scrutiny committees, you know, ridiculous constitutional principles in operation here. At least Scotland had a workable model of devolution. So contextually, it's taken us the best part of the last two decades to get a model that is now probably just about fit for purpose to be called a parliament, which, as you probably know, is part of a piece of legislation going through around name change. So all of that is the, back, is the background. Has it been successful? Well, I guess the best way of judging that is to say what might have happened had those 6,721 votes gone a different way in the um, 97 referendum. It was incredibly clear. It was 50.3%. Yeah, 50, 50 exactly. uh, very, very different from Half Scotland. a percentage point you know, yeah. in terms of uh, the, the overall... Um, Electorate. So what would have happened? I mean, some, you know, some people who are probably more pessimistic than me would say that would have been the end of the Welsh nation in terms of its political governance. And there is something to be said for that, in all honesty, because, you know, Wales is a nation that's afraid of its own shadow. I mean, I hate to say this, you know, but it is. Only in sport are we ever confident in Wales. In, ev in every other field, you know, we're constantly looking over our shoulder for some kind of um, self-definition. One of the reasons for that is... Um, one-partyism, in my opinion, and this is a question that you might want to raise with, with Mark. It's not Labour's fault that they've won every election since 1922 in Wales, general election and devolved, um, but, but it, it hasn't given the politics of Wales a chance to breathe. Um, it's the fault of the opposition parties, of course, that that's the case, you know, not, not Mark Drakeford or Carwyn Jones or anybody else's fault, but the reality is there's been very little pluralism, very little real <coughs> challenge to the dominance of Labour, and that's reflected in a lot of the policies that the Welsh Government has then enacted. So you see where I'm going with this? Heavy emphasis on universal policies, free prescriptions, free travel, free hospital parking and so on, free swimming, some of which have been proven through really robust data not to deliver the intentions that uh, they originally had. But, but, of course, if you've got limited political challenge, the chances are you'll continue to pursue those um, mm -hmm. policies because they're popular. I guess the, the other point I'd make, Bronwyn, is the one that, that I think Aaron and, and Akash referred to, which is the capacity that yeah. the Assembly has to discharge that really important role of holding the government to account. Um, the report that, that I worked on with, with colleagues here, um, Alan Rennick at the um, UCL Constitution Unit, recommended that the Assembly should be enlarged to between 80 and 90 members. It's currently 60, as I'm sure you all know here. So a significant increase, 50, you know, a 50% increase in its size. Um, there, there's so much hard evidence to show this is needed. It's almost a no-brainer, in my opinion. What there isn't, of course, is political goodwill for, for this to happen, particularly from the largest party. But if you look at the comparison between the number of backbenchers we have in Wales, around 42, to serve on every committee and challenge, you know, £16 billion of public expenditure 
and tax varying powers now um, compared to Westminster where I think there are about 115 MPs who have no office or no role, never mind sitting on a committee. It gives you a flavour of how difficult it is to really um, engender that deep scrutiny, that deep follow-up that you need to be able to hold the executive to account. So the biggest problem we've got, I think, is a lack of muscularity around scrutiny. And that, of course, has an effect on public opinion in terms of what's going on and what policies come out of uh, government as well. Let me just ask you one follow-up. As, as, as you've taken us to that point, is there enough political expertise to fill all those places. I was in Wales a week ago and, and discuss, discussing all this with um, quite a lot of people who said, well, you don't know, we're getting very inexperienced politicians who've just been on councils and things because we don't have the great history of, uh, of, well, of the Assembly. Yeah, I, I hear that argument a lot, and we heard it a lot when we were taking evidence in our expert panel. But, you know, there's no reason. This is, this is down to parties as gatekeepers, effectively. Mm. You know, p parties are the gatekeepers to the quality of elected politicians because they choose their candidates. Um, interestingly, and it's not a non-secretary, it is related, um, with our recommendation for changing the electoral system to a much more proportional system, not just as proportional, more proportional. In fact, we were recommending STV as our first choice in constituencies of between four and six members and flexible list as our second choice. But we also built in gender quotas. And this is quite important because, you know, Wales has led on gender, forget all that, 47% female has been 51% female. Um, if you're going to sustain that, then I think you need to have prescriptive legislative quotas. That is a way of improving standards, without a doubt. You know, co mm -hmm. colleagues here, you know them, Sarah Childs and Rosie Campbell, have shown how some of, some of the work around diversity can improve calibre as well. It can't improve experience necessarily, but experience comes with being in, in, in office too. And I don't really buy the fact that the politicians that we have in the Assembly are necessarily less able or experienced than they are certainly in Northern Ireland or Scotland. I think, you know, the, the less experienced ones are, are better hidden in the House of Commons, let's say. Yeah. Can, can I yeah, come, come back quickly and then I'm going to come to Northern Ireland. Yeah. There is an issue about the, the life experience, the, the, the quality of uh, debate, um, the, the, the policy ideas um, coming from this generation of politicians in um, in Edinburgh and Cardiff, but there's also an issue about that in London, and there's an issue in every yeah. West, every Western democracy. Yeah. So, although there is an issue about the yeah, quality right. of politicians right. and their vision and their their understanding really of politics um, and, the, and the, the reasons for being there um, in the devolved parliaments, there's also an issue at Westminster, yeah, and there's an issue right across Western Europe and actually increasingly in Eastern Europe as well. Alan, uh, you can certainly comment on the quality of politicians if you like. But <laughs> the, the, the grumpy old man in me wants to. Yes. Let me just start with a, with a basic, simple question of does this feel like success after 20 years and with a very different experience again that Northern Ireland has had? Um, well, indeed, the, stop, start. Uh, yes, well, it, it brought a lot of success, but we, uh, we are potentially on the, on the brink of, of serious failure unless something is done. In, in, in the near future. I'm sorry, serious failure meaning what? Uh, meaning if we, you know, things are deteriorating at the moment, things are seriously deteriorating in Northern Ireland politics and have been for the last two years, and an awful yeah. lot is, is falling apart, yeah. uh, and, and, and that could start to have, have really serious consequences. Um, it's, a, it's a very useful report. Uh, uh, we've not in Northern Ireland paid a lot of attention to good government issues, um, uh, uh, yet it's actually a good government issue that the executive fell on, the, the renewable heat incentive, 
which raised serious questions about competence, official competence, ministerial competence, and a whiff of corruption, nothing actually borne out so far, but uh, around that. And if we're to get devolution back and stable, uh, uh, I think there needs to be serious attention to, 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 to doing government better. But the pressing issue is getting devolution back. Um, it's worth remembering, the roots are different from Scotland and Wales, of course. We had 50 years of devolution uh, in Northern Ireland where one party drawn from one part of the community was in charge. Uh, and ultimately, the, the, the seeds of failure were, were, were sown in that. And from the early 1970s, British governments had concluded that the only way forward, the only viable form of government for Northern Ireland was a devolved one, but one in which both communities played a part, uh, had their energies constructively channeled, and the the voting pattern that led to that conclusion remains. Uh, that, that analysis remains right. It's reflected in the Good Friday Agreement uh, devolution institutions. Uh, and they were primarily designed to get people working together rather than bring about efficient government. So we have a system of mandatory coalition, which is effectively a selection of, of ministers by an algorithm. And that was the right priority at the time, unquestionably. Um, you know, it, it seemed marvelous to many of us uh, uh, once devolution had got back up and running in 2007, how effectively it was working together. There's Martin McGuinness and, and, and Ian Paisley on the wall over there. Uh, you know, the former chief of staff of the IRA uh, uh, and the old firebrand of the Democratic Unionist Party, who developed a very effective working relationship and indeed a personal relationship that went on to, to, to Dr. Paisley's death. Uh, and that was remarkable and that was transformative of society. So whatever the failings of devolution, uh, that, that, that is really important. And yet the institutions <coughs> collapsed a few years, a few years later. Uh, there were really serious rising tensions between the DUP and Sinn Féin. It started with the flags issue in, in, in 2012. Uh, the, to the point that devolution seemed to be in danger in 2014-2015, the British and Irish governments came back into the fray uh, and patched things up. And the executive's performance was in some ways mixed. The way it was constituted meant it started with no sense of common purpose. It didn't effectively face up to all the serious economic and social problems we have. The politics, the, the media dialogue, to some extent had not moved on from the, the old issues to, to face the future. And the nature of the institutions was such that it's much easier to block things than get things moving. Uh, so, for example, the, the petition of concern procedure that the report talks about, which turned into effectively a pocket veto for the DUP when it achieved a, a certain size, and is the reason, for example, that we don't have legislation on equal marriage in Northern Ireland. So devolution had limited concrete achievements in Northern Ireland. The fact that it was there was enormously important, and that's why it's enormously important to bring it back. But in delivery, it, it had challenges. There was still a lot of commitment to keep it going. There was nothing inevitable about the way it collapsed. It collapsed to some degree because of, of political mismanagement internally. It might have survived if the British government with the Irish government had been able to do the sort of political brokerage uh, that it had done in the past. But London had started to take its eye off the, the ball in Northern Ireland, really. After 2010, we saw much less of prime ministers uh, and luckily, of course, it became fixated on Brexit, and that caused inevitable tensions with the Irish government as well. But as I was saying, I can't emphasize how far since the collapse things really got worse in Northern Ireland. While they were working government together, the, the parties hesitated about attacking each other. Now, 
they do really little else. And the rhetoric is increasingly that of 20 and 30 years ago. And the spirit of making the institutions work, which was painfully developed over, over 20 years, is to some degree falling apart, I think. Um, uh, there have been serious tensions over policing. And in some ways, the, the development of consensus over policing was the, the most remarkable achievement of the Good Friday Agreement. Increasingly, nationalism has turned away from Stormont and is looking to the prospects of Irish unification through a border poll, for which there is a statutory trigger, if it appears to the Secretary of State, there's a majority for uh, a united Ireland, which plausibly you can't say yet, but it may not be far away. Then there has to be a poll. Some people in the DUP seemed more concerned with Westminster than, than, than getting Stormont back up and running. And we have the extraordinary position of government really being in the hands of civil servants, there being no government for two years. And London, as I say, had lost the focus. I mean, it's not unusual in issues at Westminster that Brexit has sucked the life out of it, but this is not one that can be put on the shelf um, in the hope that you can come back to it in a few years' time because things potentially getting seriously worse. So I, think it's, I do think it's imperative that we get devolved government back. There, aren't, there isn't another architecture that will meet the needs of Northern Ireland at the moment. The traditional default of direct rule is now highly problematic uh, because of the mistrust of the British government, the fact that it is dependent uh, on unionist votes at Westminster. Uh, will the talks that have started today bring it back? Well, the wisdom of the commentators have been that nothing could be achieved, uh, really, until the report of the inquiry into RHI and the resolution of Brexit. Ho, ho. Um, it's hoped that the RHI inquiry will report before the summer. Uh, big names potentially on, on the line there, because Arlene Foster was the minister responsible, for example, for, for the introduction uh, of, for, for that area at the time, the introduction of the RHI scheme. Brexit is key. It's difficult to say that it was a big factor in the collapse of the executive, though there are tensions there, but it is now a, a really major irritant. There are two things that might give things a, a fairer win. One, tragically, is the murder of a journalist, uh, Lyra McKee, in Derry a couple of weeks ago. And there is a real fear around that, about the revival of paramilitarism, because traditionally in Northern Ireland, the paramilitaries have thriven in a political vacuum, and a political vacuum is what to a large degree we have. The local government elections give some grounds as well for thinking that there might be a new spirit, because the, the centre ground parties, particularly the Alliance Party, the Green Party, succeeded beyond their own wildest expectations in those elections. And that, gives ground for thinking that the electorate is changing with younger people coming through. The old sectarian division may be losing some of its grip. But in truth, the bigger parties were not significantly shaken. I'm doubtful if in the short term the talks will produce, and it's only before the European elections, but there are really big divisions, and traditionally they've required an enormous amount of work by the British and Irish governments working together, who have always been the motor of, of political progress to bring about a more constructive spirit and work on party bases to, to prepare them for compromise. And then, traditionally, we had an agreement in a country house somewhere. And none of that work has really been done. At the same time, a lot of people want devolution to resume. We almost had a deal last year. Ultimately, the, the DUP base couldn't live with it. It's not clear it would have given stable government. It would have been better than nothing, in my view. Uh, but we really need to rebuild and to address the issues that meant that devolution did underperform before. I think that also requires a lot of work from civil society in Northern Ireland, which has been 
particularly quiescent. Uh, it has wanted to keep its head down for fear of offending devolved politicians, which may be a problem with devolved settlements generally. They, they loom large in the lives, particularly of business, uh, and that leads people to, to bite their tongues at times. But the stakes are really high, and if we don't get devolved government back, we could see really serious disruption in the case of a hard Brexit particularly, and we see the battle lines being drawn on a border poll, a referendum on Irish unity, which could be triggered statutorily, but without any, anything in place, any procedure in place uh, to say what happens after that. And, you know, if you think the Brexit was a leap in the dark, uh, it would seem really rather modest and prudent as compared with, uh, uh, with, with having a, a vote on, on, on Irish unity in those circumstances. So really the Good Friday Agreement settle is all we've got, and we've got to, got to make it work, but that requires a lot of work, and much of that work, I think, in London. Sorry, I went a long time. Yeah, no, thank you very much in, in, indeed for that. It's, it's imperative we get it uh, working again, but you, your hopes are not high at the moment. Not in the short term, certainly. Yeah. Um, thanks very much in, indeed for all of those. I want to come quite quickly to questions, but let me just ask you all um, two things. And one Alan's just brought us to, which is the point of, of what Brexit is, is, is doing to all this. So if, um, if you had a, uh, as, as what Akash also is, is working quite a bit on, if you had a wish for um, what happens to the devolution framework as a result of Brexit, what would it, what would it be? Well, <coughs> the internal arrangements of the UK. Yeah, I mean, in a very much a similar way to the, to the way in which the negotiations with the EU were very badly handled for the first 12 months or so mm. following the referendum. The discussions with the um, devolved governments mm. were similarly very badly handled for the first mm. 12 months or so. David Liddington, yet again, has made a difference in terms of just improving the dialogue and, uh, and trying to, to get a more positive um, framework in place. But the government's not yet going nearly far enough. Uh, I think there is a need for both the UK government and the devolved governments to agree that if we're not going to be sharing sovereignty on certain issues in Brussels, then we do need to share sovereignty on certain issues in the UK. And that within a certain range of uh, legislative matters, a UK Council of Ministers that operates on some kind of statutory basis with a formula for decision making that is accepted in statute by each of the four governments um, I think it's uh, is critical. We can debate all day what the formula might be, yeah, right. but I think that the, the, I, I don't think <coughs> uh, having argued and, and, and it, it, would, it would have control over what kind of. <coughs> well, I think an obvious example to me would be fishing, where yeah. you know we, we, we essentially live um, on. I've written down um, next to your name. Whose fish are they? Yeah, and, I, and, 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 and an island in a bit, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that having a council of ministers on fish, fisheries, for example, the UK-wide scheme, common fisheries policy, yeah. which has, and, you know, and, and I don't know how you would do it, whether you would have one vote for each of the ministers, that might be problematic. Um, uh, you might have to, in some areas, have two votes for the, the minister representing England, because they've got a bigger population or something like that. But you have to operate in some way, either on uh, a position that every vote uh, sorry, every decision is unanimous, or that there is a formula for a majority, and that and that and that everybody then accepts that. But I think I, I don't think you can have a situation where areas where sovereignty was shared in the past in Brussels can just become the diktat of one of the governments of the UK. Okay. 
Mm. Just two, two quick points from me. I mean, I agree with all Jack's saying there. I think um, what will destroy the union, if that's important to people, is, is unionism rather than nationalism. I think mm -hmm. if, if you have a kind of English-based commitment to unionism without understanding how better, fairer relationships can be engendered across the UK, then that's more of a risk to the union than any nationalist party can ever bring, in, in my opinion. So anything that is intergovernmental, but also interparliamentary, because I think that's been a, a quite, quite a poorly explored area. The power of interparliamentary relations in a, a new UK, possibly outside the European Union, is really very, very fundamental. The other point um, is, is back to proportionality and the way in which parties and voices are heard. I think what we've seen during the kind of Brexit mess is, and, and the local elections in England showed this last week, you know, a kind of rejection of the big parties and their dominance over um, uh, politics generally. So I think that without a shadow of a doubt, whatever happens, the, the electoral system has to change at uh, Westminster level. I think it's inconceivable that we can continue with a first-past-the-post system that doesn't reflect the new map, electoral and political choices across the United Kingdom. And therein, lessons can be learned from the devolved uh, parliaments too. Really interesting. Akash, quickly, I mean, your thoughts on both Jack's Council of Ministers and uh, end of first-past-the-post. Yes, we're on this, um, this idea of um, moving beyond the sort of traditional binary division of uh, what is reserved and what is devolved that, that Jack referred to and towards something more like a, a federal system where there's, yeah, there are functions that without the EU framework the UK and devolved levels have to uh, in some way formally uh, share sovereignty. I mean, I think that's a, there's a growing debate about that. I mean, I, I think ideas of how a, a council of ministers um, have been floated by, by the Welsh Government in particular. I don't think anyone's quite come up with a, a model of decision-making. Um, interested to hear Jack's thoughts just then, but you know, a model that would work for the distinctive circumstances of the UK. But I definitely absolutely think that's a, that's a debate that, that should now be had. And let me just ask the three of you one, one other thing briefly, which we talk about a lot here. Um, you could argue, as, as, as you have many, many have, that devolution's been a great success for uh, respecting the identity of, of people and the, the different nations and strengthening that and giving them a sense of, 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 uh, of running their own, uh, their own nation. It's been very good de democratically, if you like. Um, but uh, it has not escaped notice, particularly from the press, and even though you say the immature Welsh press has been pretty loud on this, the poor quality of public services uh, in the devolved nations compared to England beyond a point, so I think the press would, would, would have it, that can be explained by lack of money. I mean, all parts of the UK were benefiting from the Gordon Brown splurge of money in public services at one point, and all were affected by then the financial crisis and, and austerity that followed. And so I'd like to ask you, you know, should the success of devolution be judged partly by the quality of public services that the elected governments have produced? I think the success of the elected governments mm. of Scotland and Wales should be judged on the improvements in quality yes. of service. Or lack of improvement. Or lack of improvement. Or lack. And it has um, been a, sho it has been a, sho the, a shocker in many cases. The, it's also been significant improvements in other cases. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as you would get with any government at any level. So, I don't think um, the quality of public services. Is, a, is, a, is an appropriate judgment for the system of democracy for yeah. Scotland. 
Um, but I think that governments in Scotland, elected governments in Scotland, should definitely be held accountable for their uh, for the spending choices that they make. And I think um, uh, you know there are there are areas still, I would say, um, in health policy, for example, where I you know I think resources could be better directed in Scotland. But that, to me, that's a political debate that should take place um, both at election time and between elections about the performance of the Scottish Government. And one of the problems with the ongoing debate on the Constitution, as is happening here, uh, on the ongoing debate on the UK Constitution and Brexit, is that that debate sucks the energy out of the day-to-day -day accountability mm. on public services and legislation mm. and um, for the foreseeable future in both the Scottish Constitutional Debate and the UK Constitutional Debate. I'm not optimistic that we'll get back to proper public debate on public services. Uh, Alan, I think devolution does have to be judged uh, on, on, on questions about public service, and I think it is being by public in Northern Ireland. Devolution did not stand high in public regard much of the time in Northern Ireland. The health service, for example, uh, is really struggling in Northern Ireland. On some measures, it is very, very much below performance in, in England. Everybody knows there has got to be really serious restructuring. There is even, in this case, a blueprint for it, the Bengoa report. But in the absence of devolution, it is not being done. It's not being taken forward. Uh, even under devolution, the decisions were, were, were dodged, you know, to the point that people say direct rule would have been better, which is a particularly awful, awful judgment in some ways to have to make. So I think if, if devolution is going to be work in Northern Ireland and be stable in Northern Ireland, it has got to start biting the bullet on some of these things, and ultimately only that will give it, give it real achievements. Quick word. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of something new to I agree with all of that. But I mean, you know, obviously 20 years is not that long to correct some really deep structural problems with the economies, particularly in, in Wales and Northern Ireland, and probably similar in parts of Scotland. You know, you, it's very hard to create exciting change in public policies that will address some really deep-seated socio-economic demographic issues in a period of 20 years. The second point is only in the devolved nations would a threat be cast on the institution based on the performance of government. You know, you don't have that in Westminster because the institution is so stable and entrenched really and I think that's a very, very significant problem. I think as well, as, as, as Jack said, you know, the, there's been very little exposure of some of the good, innovative interventions in public policy in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. I mean, just, just taking obvious ones, you know, the, the ban on plastic bags, which came in first in Wales, came in in 2010, 11, I think. That was before there was a, a, any discussion about plastic pollution. So in a sense, you know, creating a kind of more experimental space sometimes does create innovative public policy. The problem is what people are most interested in is health, you know, which swallows up the big chunk of the budget, and education. And, and, and both of those areas have highly intense measures against which they can be judged across the UK, that exposing weaknesses, therefore. I think, yes. I think that's a very good point. The fact that the public transport system in England is a complete shambles uh, and is largely the responsibility of yeah, successive transport point. ministers yeah. in the UK government hasn't led to a questioning about shutting down the UK Parliament. Exactly. Yeah, quite, quite. If you know what I mean. It's about the minister. The minister gets the focus of attention. And we're not yet at a, yeah, a level of maturity, yeah. I don't think, in Scotland, Wales, and mm. maybe Northern Ireland as well, where the individual ministers yeah. are held accountable for their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. All right. To be continued, let's, go to, let's go to questions. <clears throat> Um, right, the first one up uh, on the aisle by the camera. Can you wait for the microphone, please? 
Um, Hugh Rawlings, uh, I'm um, Director of Constitutional Affairs in the Welsh Government um, and have been for far too long. Um, uh, it seems to me what uh, Akash and Aaron uh, have described in the report is absolutely on the money. I even agreed with some of what Laura said, which is quite unusual, really. Um, the question that struck me about this... Oh, you're talking about a challenge, the need to agree constitutional principles. First point is that the concept of the UK is still contested. We, it's very interesting that no one has mentioned the recent political developments in Scotland about the prospect of another independence referendum. So how can we agree about constitutional principles if we don't know what the state is going to be? But secondly, the question I would ask is, who is going to be agreeing these new constitutional principles? Because one of the major lessons that I have learned for myself over the last 20 years is the almost complete inability, and I don't wish to offend any UK government colleagues here, but the almost complete inability of the UK government to think about big picture constitutional issues. Certainly nothing happened in 1997 to 99, which was in any way based on a conception of the UK going forward. I see no likelihood, certainly in the present government, and you know, when we talk about getting Brexit done, well, we all know that even if we got the current stage of Brexit through, it's going to absorb the next five years of, of, of energy. There is no capacity in the UK government to think big picture constitutionalism. And therefore, I'm not clear who is going to be agreeing the constitutional principles for which you are very rightly arguing. All right, thanks very much. Let me take another one at the same time, just behind. Hi, I'm uh, Tommy Shepherd. I'm the uh, SNP MP uh, for Edinburgh East and spokesperson at Westminster on the Constitution. Um, I, I, I haven't read the full report, but I must say that just looking at the overview, there does appear to be a slight whiff of complacency. Uh, I think we are in the United Kingdom, we are in the middle of a general crisis of confidence in the political system mm. that gives the context uh, for this that uh, requires some radical uh, addressing. Uh, and there seems to be a, a suggestion that really we're in a process of consolidation of devolution. And I was wondering, um, when you talked about the, the challenges of the third decade, I was surprised to see no specific reference to Scotland. Uh, I mean, it's worth noting that um, the Scottish Parliament is elected by a broadly proportional system. And the last time those elections took place, a majority of people were elected on a commitment to have a further referendum on the question of Scottish independence. And if that election were to take place again today, I guess that majority might be even larger given current polls. So don't get me wrong, I think devolution has been a tremendous success. I think it's immeasurably better than what came before it. And I think we can point to a lot of material improvements. But the general question is by no means uh, settled in Scotland. Uh, and I, I wonder, uh, I mean, and I think the problem is that as well as giving people powers, devolution also does show into sharp relief the powers you don't have. And I think that process has been rather turbocharged by the Brexit debate. So given that the Sunday Times on uh, this Sunday in Scotland actually published an opinion poll that said that 50% um, of people believe that devolution has made Scottish independence more likely, and a clear majority of people in that poll, whether they agree or disagree with independence, uh, think it is inevitable. 
would the panel uh, agree that perhaps that is the case and that devolution is just a stage on the inevitable process of political autonomy coming back to Scotland? Thank you. Let's take those two together, and they sit very well together. Jack, I, 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 the, the, those roads go immediately to you. Um, Scottish independence, inevitable. Well, I don't think anything is inevitable. Uh, uh, in, uh, in life generally, but also in, uh, uh, in, in democratic politics uh, at the moment. Um, I think it's been very interesting that these polls over the last few weeks in Scotland seem to show a slight increase in support for uh, independence but also um, a, 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 an increase in opposition to having a second referendum um, in the short term because people are, uh, I think, fed up to the back teeth of constant uh, polit uh, constitutional debate and political change. So I think there is a, uh, the issue of independence for Scotland has not gone away and that debate will continue. I'm not as convinced as some people are that there's going to be a referendum anytime in the near future uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I think the... And meant it, your, your question, to some extent, Tommy, links directly into the, uh, the previous question. Um, to me, if Brexit is to happen, uh, it was a massive opportunity to think about the big picture about uh, the UK uh, at that stage, almost 20 years on, from the big constitutional changes of 1998-99, which weren't just about devolution, but they were probably the most, uh, the most dramatic. Um, and I think that's... It, many depressing, demoralising things about the political debate over the, last, uh, over the last three years. But to me, that's been one of them, that this opportunity, I think, probably now has been missed. Um, I, I think it would have been possible to have, uh, following the referendum in 2016, to think radically differently about how the UK government itself is structured. Um, I think it's a nonsense that there are still territorial secretaries of state in the UK cabinet 20 years after devolution. The opportunity to create a senior minister on the level of the Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary and the Chancellor, who is responsible for the diversity of the United Kingdom, for the devolved nations and for uh, perhaps the local government in England and perhaps some other uh, issues of that sort as well. Somebody sitting at the top table in the Cabinet um, who could be a voice but also you know, a, a, a link to, to the diversity of the UK uh, and would add power to the Northern Ireland peace process and the process. Um, I think it was missed. A whole bundle of other councils and ministers and so on could have been thought about um, a reinvigoration of the civil service rather than the meaning of it, which I think is what's happened in the last three years. Uh, all of these issues could have been tackled. Um, and I just hope that out of these ashes that I live in down the road there um, every week and I despair as I come down, travel down from Scotland, uh, that at some point in the next year or two, somebody somewhere is going to grasp this. Um, from one of the one of the one of the parties, and actually uh, create the big debate that's necessary. I've become increasingly supportive of the idea of a constitutional convention in the UK mm. because I don't see the political parties grasping this. Um, but if a convention is going to make a difference, as it did in Scotland, it has to have some sort of legitimacy. And people forget the Scottish convention was not a collection of civic organisations. It was a representative of every local authority in Scotland, a representative of all the elected members of Parliament and the European Parliament in Scotland, uh, and so on. And I think that, that gave it an authority and a weight, and I think some, something similar in the UK that could debate these big issues is low, now, now, in my view, desperately needed and long overdue. Norm, we come to you, on, and particularly on Hugh's point, which um, Jack has just taken us to. Who is going to discuss 
these constitutional things and what is going to force this onto the agenda of a government uh, deeply distracted by other things, whether it's this government or another one? Um, I, I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not optimistic, if I'm being really honest. I think Jack's point about a convention was one that our former First Minister worked very hard to, uh, Carwin Jones worked very hard to, including a speech here, I think, or, uh, yeah. worked very hard to, to promote. But, you know, in a sense, he wasn't supported significantly by other key partners across the devolved administrations, and, and therein lies the problem. We, you know, we have to work as a team on this, or it's simply not, not going to happen. And the, the kind of oddity is that, you know, the, the worst governed part of the UK is England, without a shadow of a doubt, because of, you know, very ad hoc bits of devolution, which are pretty ill thought out with no rationale, no planning, no referendum on the basis that we had to have in Scotland and Wales for, to add legitimacy. So you, you'd assume that the biggest part of the UK would be most enthusiastic about doing something to rationalise the constitution and prepare for the future, but there doesn't seem to be much appetite there. Maybe there is in English local government. I mean, I'm not close enough to know that really, but I would have thought that we need the kind of discussions that he, he was alluding to there, and I agree with entirely. I like the notion of a constitutional convention, but I think they're extremely difficult to put together for all the reasons that we, we know. And I think it has to be about the local as well as the national within the UK as well. You know, we still have this weird system of local government and regional government, which, which I think delivers for some parts of the United Kingdom and doesn't deliver for others. So if we're talking about devolution, you know, let's look at the whole constitutional landscape and try and have a serious conversation for the first time ever about how we want this voluntary union of nations and to, to actually work. And, and if we don't do that, you know, I, I, I think you know, the, point, the points about the future of independence might actually apply as much in Wales in the next decade as they do in Scotland. You, lots of people might want that, but the, lots of people don't want that as well. Mm. Alan, do you want to pick up um, also the points you were expanding on before about um, the border poll and where this is? Yes, Where this I mean, is going. getting 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 England to focus on the other region, even doing devolution in the cabinet office, okay. you found that there was a measure of understanding of Scotland and sympathy for Scotland. At that time in Northern Ireland, we were quite privileged in that, although almost nobody understood the Good Friday Agreement, they they they, they recognised it was all walking on eggshells, and they had to be very careful. Uh, for Wales, I fear there was quite little understanding uh, uh, at all, and that you know it may just be a product, the, the, you know, the asymmetry of of, of, of the Union. Uh, I mean, the problem is now that in, in, in the last few years as regards Northern Ireland, some of, the, uh, some of that restraint has been, has been, has been abandoned uh, 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 and there is not the recognition anymore that it, it is all potentially difficult and it has got with the, uh, uh, with the collapse of the executive very much more difficult. And we, you know, we may find ourselves in a position where, as I say, the statutory trigger for a border poll uh, 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 actually comes about. Uh, 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 in the case of a hard Brexit, it is possible to envisage that. Many on the Unionist side have said it won't happen. A few are now saying it is at least a medium-term likelihood. Uh, and the difficulty there is that nothing is planned out beyond that. Uh, the, the, you know, we, we fault people like me who are working uh, on the process at the time, but uh, uh, we rather envisaged that in a two-year negotiation that led to the Good Friday Agreement, there would be some serious discussion of this. In fact, there was no, no discussion at all. So we know that at some step there, will be, there could be a border poll. The border poll may be triggered. There will have to be one at some stage in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, uh, at some stage, the two governments have got to come up with proposals which are put to the British Parliament. 
but quite how they do that is, is, is wholly uncertain. So it, it is a very, very dangerous course to, to, to go down, uh, and we should be thinking very carefully about, uh, about how it is structured, because we, we may ultimately get there. Uh, but little understanding, I fear, in London at I mean, the that's moment. An ex- that's an excellent point about how little is, is, is been thought out about what after a border poll. But the force of these two questions, it seems to me, is that it is potentially a crisis to, uh, for the union in Scotland and Northern Ireland that forces this onto the agenda of Westminster. Uh, and potentially Where nothing is... short of a crisis, yes, we'll, yeah. we'll get it there, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Akash, uh, just uh, briefly, um, uh, whiff of complacency. Uh, glorious mm-hmm. next 20 years of devolution without paying enough attention to the political crisis that we're mm-hmm. in at the moment. <laughs> Um, well, I'm not sure if, 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 if I'd quite agree with that assessment. I mean, obviously, interested to hear your thoughts if you, if you do get a chance to, to read the whole report. Um, I mean, what I'd say on the, the, the particular point you raise, I mean, we, we, we make this case um, as uh, well, Hugh was just, uh, you know, flagging this issue that there does need to be consideration of uh, what are the, the core principles that govern the relationship between the nations and institutions of the UK, and you know, I, we, we talked in particular about the Sewell Convention as the as the specific um, issue that has arisen. But but I do think there's a there's a deeper question about um, well, recognizing as as Laura's just said actually that the UK is not a a decentralised unitary state. It is a union of of, of of nations, a voluntary union of nations, that implies ultimately a right of, of self-determination. That's not to say we're sort of recommending um, India F2 should be should be held anytime soon. But I, I think that question of um, yeah, well, what does it mean to 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 to, to have a union of, of four nations that have a uh, the right to determine the form of government best suited to their needs, which was the wording of the the claim of rights on which Scottish devolution was founded, I think we do need to, to think about what that means in, in practice, and indeed uh, for, for England as well, because I would, I would agree with um, some of what Laura said about uh, the, the, the mess of um, devolution arrangements within England, not really being a, a sort of sustainable settlement, um, and, and we, we identified that that's something else that um, certainly needs to be considered. Okay, great. We're stopping at quarter past. We can squeeze in one, maybe two more questions, which is a peg for people's last thoughts. Does anyone want to stick their hand up for this? Right here, here, here in the front. It's a very brief. Sorry. It's a very brief. Like so, Diane Hopkin, I, uh, in another capacity, I advise First Minister on how to commemorate the First World War, which is now coming to an end, I think. Um, but it's beginning elsewhere. Um, can I just raise a question? I think the very use of the word nation here and devolution, I think, is something we ought to reflect on at least because definition of nation does vary very considerably. And I'm thinking specifically in Wales where there will be two definitions of what being Welsh is, one being non-Welsh speaking and the other being Welsh speaking. And those cultural issues do cut across a lot of the politics. And I think the same might be said elsewhere. The complication is we talk about devolution as though there's homogeneous units that you're dealing with and they are not. And that actually is why there are trajectories of expectation which are different in different mm. parts, mm. specifically in Northern Ireland, of course, but also increasingly in Wales too. And I just don't know whether Laura agrees with that. L- Laura, we'll come to you and then I'm just going to ask everyone for their 
quick last thought. Um, I don't, don't, don't agree entirely, but I know what you're alluding to. I think probably the, the lack of state apparatus in Wales has made Wales a much more disintegrated, differentiated nation than it should be at this point in time. You know, just taking transport infrastructure across, across the country. So clearly there are very different understandings of nationhood and what comes with it across Wales. But I think the kind of enduring understanding of what Wales's history is as a nation still, is still very clear in, in most parts of Wales. But unfortunately that, that isn't very well reflected back to the people of Wales through our media, which is where we started with all of this. Jack or Alan, does that prompt any riposte from you? I think identity is really important in all of this, and it's, um, and it's as, as you said at the very beginning, it's important all over the world now. Almost every conflict in the world today has a majority and a minority inside a national border fighting with each other um, on the basis of history, discrimination, inequality, identity, cultural, religious identity. Um, uh, the, the UK's devolution is used in an awful lot of these places as part of the peace negotiations, trying to convince people there are better ways of governing a country and that, that it can be achieved peacefully rather than through um, violence. And we should be proud of that. So whatever ups and downs there's been in devolution over the last 20 years and whatever challenges there might be for the next decade, we created peaceful, radical, democratic change in this country and we did it relatively successfully and we're admired throughout the world for that. What we need to do, unlike what we're doing just now uh, in relation to Brexit. So, I think we need to recognise that success um, and we need to also, I think, celebrate the fact that, certainly in Scotland, and I'm sure this is true in Wales as well, despite some of the statistics showing there are problems with decisions that individual governments made in the devolved uh, systems, Scotland certainly is a radically different place than it was in 1999 when politicians still appointed their friends as judges when we still had a system of feudal land tenure where people couldn't paint their back doors without getting permission from the landowner, where we, where we had a criminal justice system where cases were falling through the cracks and mm. people were not, victims were not getting justice because people were not being prosecuted, where we had the worst public health record in Europe and we led the way in the UK on the smoking ban. We had the second worst recycling record in Europe after Turkey and we led the UK on a national recycling strategy uh, it, and where we had a declining population and through a very radically different approach to immigration in Scotland than has been the case in the rest of the UK, which I was warned against but was determined to do, uh, we've reversed that. We now have an increasing population every year since 2004. Um, so I know I, 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 if you look at the big picture issues, to go back to your question about big pictures, in these big picture issues, Scotland is a much better place than it was in 1999. We should be proud of that, but we now need to resolve the fact that these four nations need to find a way of living together in the 21st century. Mm. Well, contested identity is where the heart of the problem in Northern Ireland, and for a time we were dealing with it rather effectively, I think. Uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement established the right to be, consider yourself British or Irish or both, and we were beginning to transcend the old 19th century nation-state model uh, and find ways of, of working. Borders ceased to matter very much. Uh, uh, people sort of happily paraded multiple identities. Uh, the last few years we've seen that process rather, rather in decline and it's, um, uh, it's hard to be completely optimistic. Mm. And Aaron, let, let me ask you finally, as I said, this, this report uh, is very heavily 
uh, based on data, it's bringing together the data uh, such as we have about devolution. If you had one wish, maybe more than one, for data that we have not been able to get hold of or whatever, what would it be? Um, um, so there are definitely kind of areas where we wish we had access to kind of better, more comparable data. We were considering doing a bit more looking at the kind of performance of public services, which while there is data out there, it's quite difficult to kind of reconcile it from different parts of the UK. Um, so, and I think the other thing we were planning to look at, um, but it was quite difficult to get a hold of kind of comparable numbers was kind of backgrounds of elected representatives in each nation and the kind of what type of person becomes a politician in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, whether it's created a new type of politician or whether kind of, it's the same mould as Westminster. Right, that, and some of the cost details. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of how much it costs to run the assembly mm -hmm. in, in Parliament. Um, anyway, to be continued, thank you all for coming, for terrific questions. Can you join me in thanking the panel?